welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, uh, and my guest this week is Ian Garner, an author and expert on Russian war propaganda. His forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the battle that has captured Soviet and Russian minds for 80 years, and he's now working on his second book uh, about fascism and the future of Russia. Thanks very much for joining me today, Ian. Good morning uh, to those of you who are in North America like I am, and good afternoon, Steve and others in Europe. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, I'll just say that I have uh, come down with a bit of a cold and I'm starting to lose my voice. So if my ability to express myself eloquently diminishes throughout the remainder of this podcast, then I do apologize. All right. Thanks very much, Ian. Um, uh, thanks for uh, persevering and joining us. Uh, hope you hope you feel better soon. Um, and the first question, uh, it's great to have you, have you on the podcast. The first question I'd like to ask um, has to do with propaganda, but maybe uh, more with perceptions of the war in Ukraine, may, mainly in Russia. Uh, the war in Ukraine is really Russia's war on Ukraine, against Ukraine, and every day Ukrainians are being killed. Uh, and in the midst of this death and destruction, there have been sp some specific occurrences, um, specific tragedies uh, that have really touched people. I think it resonated with people in Ukraine and around the world in some cases. Now, one of these uh, very recent um, and, and really painful to talk about was the death of Liza Dmitrieva, a four-year-old girl who was killed in an airstrike last week on the city of Vinitsa, which is quite far from the front lines uh, in the Donbass and southern Ukraine. It's kind of western, central city. Um, and her mother uh, was severely was severely injured, uh, but survived. So my question is, um, are tragedies like this, uh, horrors like this, having any effect on perceptions of the war in Russia itself? And if they're not having much of an effect, why aren't they? Has the government been able to suppress information uh, so that large numbers of people just aren't learning about such things? Or has it been able to create false narratives that muddy the waters and, and blunt any possible reaction? It's an important question, and there's, there's so many parts to this question that it's, it's almost hard to answer in part because the government has been so effective in doing the two things that you mentioned, in suppressing information and in muddying the waters, blunting the reaction with false narratives. But I think my headline answer has to be to the question, are tragedies like this having any effect on perception of the war in Russia itself? The answer is seemingly no, seemingly not really. And I've seen some threads on Twitter posted by opposition members who are, I, I would say, almost clutching at straws, and justifiably so, looking for, looking for places where support for the war is falling. But on the whole, perhaps the enthusiasm is a bit more muted after five months than it was after a month of the war or after a couple of weeks of the war. But I don't think we can conflate that with a sort of widespread collapse in support for the war. Medusa, the uh, 
the uh, well-known outlet found a, or had a government poll leaked to it, got hold of this government poll that suggested, I believe, and I'm sure some of the listeners will correct me if the exact wording that I'm, that I'm giving is wrong because the exact wording matters. I believe it found that 30% of the population would support ending the quote-unquote special military operation immediately. Now, that's quite a substantial chunk, but that is not an overwhelming or even almost a significant sort of move in the support for the war, I would say, compared to what we saw three or four months ago. So how has the government done this? Well, we all know the ways by now in which it monies the waters, in which there will be dozens of telegram channels supported by the government or just run by people who are patriotic Russians, nationalists, well, who would paint themselves as patriotic Russians and as, you know, lovers, lovers, of, lovers of the nation, who will amplify each other's posts that will say, well, this is a fake, this is a lie, it's a provocation that actually this, you know, the shocking mal hundreds of miles behind the front line was actually a legitimate target. There were Nazis in the building. They were using the civilians as human shields. This This stuff is awfully, unpleasantly familiar to us by now. And that confuses listeners, and many people in Russia really, really do believe it, right? They, they've seen this so many times that they believe it, and the quality of the production of much of the kind of what the Russians would call anti-fake, anti-provocation propaganda is quite high. The production values are quite good, and it, it looks as persuasive if you don't look too hard. The other thing I think that's important, this is something that's been covered less in the Western media when it comes to the death of the little girl Lisa last week, is that Russia for years now, ever since the 2014 invasion, has been painting itself as the defender of children in Donbass and the defender of children across Ukraine. Children are painted as more widely in Russian society as terribly innocent. I, I would say even more innocent than children in the West are, that they're sort of loved in this sort of saccharine almost way. And there is an awful lot of propaganda material, videos that go around showing children welcoming the Russian liberators as they're painted with open arms that shows the supposed crimes of Ukrainians against Ukrainian Ukraine's own children and so I, I think when Russians see videos like the video of the girl Lisa it's easy for them to wrap these stories of provocations and fakes into that wider narrative about saving children saving the future and building a sort of this future Russian world that defends the next generation and I think that's it's so important because we talk a lot about empire and war and imperialism and territory as motivations for the war, but also the government is always looking for ways to justify its continued existence in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And this turn towards looking at the next generation, looking at children, has really been quite pronounced in propaganda and pronounced in culture and pronounced in the ways that children are being educated and it makes it easy to see the war as something that is justified as something that is heroic and not as something that is 
well, the reality that is Russia is bombing and murdering Ukrainian civilians. Yeah, that, that's actually, that's uh, uh, a, I mean, obviously painful, but a, a great point about the, the focus of some of the propaganda, or a lot of the propaganda on on children, on the future. Um, and of course, a lot of what Russia is doing, or the Russian government and state is doing at home, you know, seems to be kind of indoctrinating children uh, into these views and and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and 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 as you say, I think. Uh, the idea of protecting children and and the idea the, the the false kind of narrative about Ukraine being an aggressor against children has has been existing you know since 2014 since since the the war in the Donbas uh, started there I think there were a couple of kind of prominent fakes um, along those lines and I think I I think the the idea of Russia as a protector of children you know, fits in with uh, some of the things that Putin has been saying as justification for the war, um, especially recently, uh, you know, where he's talking, kind of talking about a, a new world order, uh, you know, with Russia. Definitely cast, I don't think he mentioned it very specifically in his last comments, uh, but definitely casting Russia as kind of the, the protector of you know, uh, of uh, vulnerable countries, at least, and, and peoples, and, and by extension, children, I think. So, yeah, it is quite, uh, does seem to be quite a, a strand of the, of the propaganda. Um, now, the second Can question uh, I'd like to ask is, is more about the perceptions in the West. Um, I think it's safe to say that Western involvement is a key element in the course of the war and its potential outcome uh, because Western countries are providing aid and crucially weapons with which Ukraine is trying to defend itself and push Russian forces back and in fact out of the country. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, it's, it's been nearly five months uh, since Russia launched this large scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. But it's been more than eight years since the war began in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and a reminder of that was the anniversary this uh, Saturday, July 11th. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, on July 17th, um, uh, the anniversary of the downing of MH17, the Malaysia Airlines passenger jet that was shot down over the Donbass in 2014 killing all 298 people aboard, men, women, and children uh, flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, in 2016, an international uh, joint investigatory team determined that MH17 was shot down by a Buk anti-aircraft system that had been brought to Ukraine from Russia the same day uh, as the downing and was returned to Russia uh, minus uh, one missile after not long after the jet, uh, the passenger jet was shot down, and three Russians and a Ukrainian are on trial in absentia in the Netherlands uh, for their alleged roles in the MH17 downing, which led uh, at the time to increased uh, Western sanctions against Russia over the war. Uh, verdicts are expected by the end of the year. Now, that was a long time ago. The downing of MH17 drew international attention to Russia's aggression against Ukraine, uh, 
And the invasion this February and the killing and destruction that has occurred since February 24th has obviously done that as well. Um, and people's lives are being affected um, around the world because Russia's war in Ukraine has, has led to higher energy prices. Its blockade of Black Sea, for, uh, I'm sorry, Black sea ports has affected grain exports, uh, worsening world hunger. Um, but my question is essentially, is there a risk that the attention that the war is getting in the West will fade um, and that this would in turn affect the potential outcome? Um, there's sort of a lot of talk about uh, how long uh, this will go on and, and the, the idea of a stalemate, um, which if a stalemate were to happen anytime very soon, it would leave a, a, a substantial amount of Ukrainian territory in, in Russian hands. And, and does Russian propaganda have a role in this process um, of, of kind of perceptions in the West? Are we seeing efforts by Russia to weaken resolve in the West uh, in addition to, to weakening, trying to weaken resolve in Ukraine itself? So again, it's another huge question. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's it's a very good question. It's important that these that the different parts of the question are asked together rather than in, in isolation. Because the, I mean, the nature of media and and what we call propaganda today is that it is embedded in everyday life. It is embedded in culture. So much of our lives are conducted in this sort of mediatized form where we experience the world through our smartphones, through. Twitter, through Facebook, through other social media networks that basically funnel in an, a sort of unsorted collection of facts, truths, mistruths, opinion, social happenings, and real news stories, fake news stories. All of this stuff is just thrown together. That's, that's the real reality that we're living in. There is no distinction between the social media world we're in and the sort of, the, you know, in real life that we used to talk about when it came to, you know, the internet versus IRL, as we would call it, I don't know, five or 10, 15 years ago. And so what the Russians have been terribly good at in the past is muddying the waters there and just filling those feeds with all sorts of stuff. And I, I don't see that they're actually doing that very effectively right now because they've, they did such a poor job of attempting to justify the war. And I, I apologize, I'm talking in sort of very morally crude terms here, so I don't mean any offense like they, they could or should have done a good job. But purely from their perspective, they did such a poor job of selling any justification for the war whatsoever in the first weeks of the war that I think they turned Western opinion against themselves for good. And I, I said at the time, I, I wrote articles, you can go find them if you're really desperate to bore yourself to tears, pointing out that the Russians had overestimated the West's fracturing and disunity. And so far, I, I don't really see that the disunity in the West has grown to any substantial degree. But what we will do, and what we already have done, is we have lost the attention of ordinary people. People are moving on because they're flicking onto other things, they're liking other things, they're sharing other things on their social media networks, they're moving themselves over into bubbles that don't really focus on the war in Ukraine because Zelensky has done another heroic, terrific speech. Well, how many of those have we seen before? It loses the newness, it loses the appeal, and the, the nature of that mediatized reality we live in is something that Russia can sort of exploit by default. 
they don't need to do too much. The stalemate actually favours them in that regard because less stuff happening means less news. And if there's less news, there is less to capture the viewer's attention. We all naturally get bored. And I'm, it's not easy. I find myself becoming sort of familiar with the images, with the shocking images. You know, that sort of headache-inducing insomniac madness of the first days of the war has been replaced with this sort of grim, it's happening again, every day is the same. So that, that really favours Russia. But I also think, and I can't really comment on the strategic outcomes of the war and the battle because I just don't know, that's not my area. But I also think that for all that Russia appears to be in a position of strength when it comes to hard power and things like gas supplies, if they cut off gas supplies, they're equally as likely to create new news events that are negative towards Russia and therefore actually strengthen Western resolve and have the whole sort of social media bubble flare up again as they are to make Western politicians break and somehow give in to Russian demands. And we are still seeing more Western leaders sort of break and, and come out against Russia. But we're also we're also in... And I would look away from maybe viewers and I would look towards some substantial events towards the end of the year that might have a bigger impact. And that is British politics. What on earth is happening with the, the prime minister and the sort of the shakiness of the British government? They will clearly continue to support Ukraine in some way, but we don't know what way. And the other, the much bigger one, and this is a whole kettle of fish that I don't want to get into, but it's too important not to mention. That is the American elections, the midterm elections in the fall. Who knows what will happen? Who knows what balance of power will be in the States afterwards? But we will continue whatever happens to forget events very, very fast. And we've already forgotten MH17's anniversary yesterday. I bet not many people are thinking of it today. Probably very few people are thinking about Russia's war in Syria. And Russian forces are still in Syria, interfering and doing all sorts of things. We have forgotten events that seemed to dominate our consciousness, like, for example, who remembers the hijacking and kidnapping of Roman Pratistievich, the Belarusian opposition blocker, last year by Belarusian forces when they downed a, or forced to down a, a Ryanair flight in Europe? Right. That was only a year ago, but it already has just been wiped from our consciousness. These things can move really, really fast. And it is up to us to keep sharing and liking if you want to support Ukraine. And we will continue to rely on news editors and media producers looking for new stories and finding new angles on what is becoming familiar. Otherwise, inevitably, attention will dwindle. Yeah, that, that's a very sort of powerful comment, I think, and, and, and insight, insightful. I mean, I having just uh, actually gotten the date of the MH17 uh, uh, downing wrong, or the day, I said Saturday, it was Sunday, um, you know, that's the kind of thing I think you're talking about. And uh, I, you know, and it is... Um, for for weeks doing this this podcast you know, after the 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 large scale invasion, I mean obviously the war was going on for eight years before that, but you know I, uh, it's just quite amazing you know as as you said that, that there are new there are kind of new events new 
horrible happenings every day. Um, and one, you know, there's the risk that, that people get inured to them and, and it becomes, becomes sort of a normal background. I mean, obviously it's not normal at all, but it becomes part of the background, you know, to people's uh, lives who are, not, who are not affected by it directly or even, or even you know, somewhat directly through uh, gas prices or, or something like that. Um, also interesting, you know, but I agree. I mean, I think there, I think you mentioned sort of towards the beginning of your comments the idea that that Russia kind of lost, you know, lost the, um, you know, was was unable to um, to justify the war in any in any decent way. And I think, and I think the perceptions in the West changed, you know, quite quite seriously. Um, in terms of you know after the February twenty fourth invasion, uh, as opposed to after twenty fourteen or or even MH seventeen, where, um, and I think Russian officials may even have realized that because you have, you know Lavrov saying recently something like we're not you know white and fluffy as they say we're not we're not pristine and we we are what we are you know and that's the kind of thing I don't think it was really a slip but it's the kind of thing where um, I I think to some degree they they. You know, they they may have acknowledged that um, that they're not uh, actually in the right, or that they won't be able to convince people of certain things. Um, so you know, that is uh, that is something. But as you say, events in the West, um, even without kind of the the you know, energy issues, um, which as you say could can have sort of be a double edged sword. I mean someone in the West could say to their own, you know, to their president or their prime minister, well, why aren't you, why are you letting gas prices rise? Or, but on the other hand, um, they may blame Russia. So that's kind of a, um, you know, um, a double-edged sword. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, again, you mentioned the, the elections coming up uh, in the U.S. and, and Britain. Um, so there are, there are events outside uh, Ukraine and outside Russia, um, that will that will be affecting will be affecting things. The the other thing that I would just add to this is the fact that this goes both ways. Russian audiences are equally living this sort of mediatized existence, and Russian audiences will also grow tired of the war. They are also struggling for the lack of new news, as it were. They were promised a quick victory. They have a, a cult of sacrifice and victory that's been fed to them for several decades. And they're not seeing the benefits of it yet. Right? So they, they are in for a hard winter too. They're in for a, a difficult form and a difficult few months at the very least. And although I am not one of those people who expects to see the Putin government collapse or any meaningful change as a result of that, it has to have some significance. It has to have some bearing when the mass of the population who are pretty indifferent to the war, sort of maybe leaning towards supporting it, are seeing income dwindle, are seeing living standards fall, and are not really seeing any benefits from this, this ongoing war. It's going to take a really immense propaganda effort from the government to convince them that it's it's all worthwhile, and I don't think there's much sign that they can do it. Yeah, that that's a great point. I think um, you know, and 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 I think a lot of analysts of the 
you know, the economy, you say, you know, the, the, the worst kind of effects of, of sanctions are still to be, are still to be felt and, and things are going to, you know, get worse, uh, in Russia, um, you know, in months, uh, towards the, you know, closer to the end of the year. So, so that is something that without, without some kind of a major, uh, change, you know, in the, in, in the situation in the war, you know, as you say, that may, that may affect, uh, the way, the way people there are, are, are seeing things and, and how much support, you know, they, they have for it. Because of course, as you say, a lot of the support is, is kind of tacit. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, this year, obviously, in many ways, will be the coming months will be crucial for um, for what happens uh, for for kind of the the course and, and the outcome of this war. And meanwhile, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing these uh, these uh, these horrors kind of every day that that keep happening. Um, I will. Um, we're getting a bit short of time, but I'd like to take uh, some questions if uh, if there are any. So you can request uh, speaking privilege if you want to ask a question, or you can send a DM or reply reply to the tweet in this Twitter space. I'll just give it a few more moments. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions. Okay. Uh, right. Hello. Okay, yeah, Andre. Hello, yeah. this is Andre uh, speaking from Sweden. Uh, thank you for a really interesting space. Um, my question regards... Uh, the side of the side of the war going on on Twitter. So uh, I've been reading threads and I've been occasionally participating in threads that uh, uh, contains, you know, Kremlin talking points. Basically, uh, you recognize them quite quickly. Uh, it's what aboutism and it's. Um, various stories. Uh, it can be biolabs in Ukraine, it can be Ukrainian Nazis. There are, uh, you know, certain set of stories that, that uh, uh, you recognize pretty quickly. So my question here is, um, sort of, is it worth it to try to uh, counter those stories? I've been doing it a couple of times uh, when, when I see something that I, I think, you know, I have some good sources or this is obvious nonsense and maybe maybe I can contribute some something here. Uh, but it feels like uh, a really serious thing to do. Uh, it, it's just more of it. And then I'm thinking, what what good am I actually doing here? 
I'm not very likely to convince the, the, the account pushing the, the Kremlin narrative that that's, that seemed to be to be you know out of the question. So the only uh, good I'm doing probably is that maybe I'm I'm contributing some uh, facts to the people later on reading the thread, but they might be quite few. So I suppose my general question is, is it worth it? Or what can I do to make it more worth my time? Something like that. Thank you. So I think firstly, Andrea, you're, you're doing excellent work and I thoroughly applaud your um, enthusiasm and tenacity in attempting to, to persuade people, or indeed, as I think the only realistic outcome that you're going to get is showing observers the facts, at least. But I think... Now, let me talk a little bit more about the book that I'm writing right now, which will come out next spring, if all goes to plan. So I've, I've been talking to Russians who support the regime, and I've been talking to some let's say some people who are pretty out there with what they believe. Looking especially at young people who are very connected on the internet. And what I'm finding is, and this is unsurprising probably to anybody who looks at the polarization in America or Britain around certain political topics. These people are living in a semantic world entirely of their own construction. One of the ways that government propaganda has been so effective in Russia has been to give people the platforms, structures, and phrases and words to express themselves and understand themselves within a completely different reality to the reality that you and I are living in, which is a reality based more in empirical fact, although, of course, we're all subject to some level of cognitive bias, for example. And these people cannot be persuaded because the government has simultaneously given them the means to embrace their own flaws, to embrace a lack of logic, and to reject anything that threatens the fragility of their worldview. And that's summed up right now. I don't know if you've seen it, Andre, and others might not have seen this. I apologize if you have, because you, if you've been following Russia. This phrase, Namnistidma, we're not ashamed really encapsulates the ability of pro-Putin, pro-war Russians to turn criticism on its head. So they will say, you know, yeah, we killed some civilians. We're not ashamed. We're not ashamed to be Russian. It's, as Steve mentioned, it's Lavrov almost bragging about being the dastardly, terrible Hollywood villain and saying, you know what? screw the rest of you, it doesn't matter, we don't care about the real facts, we're just going to broadcast maximum volume what we believe, and let nothing challenge that. And you can't persuade those people with facts, I'm afraid. You cannot persuade them with evidence, because they already have a mental framework to a priori just reject every part of the evidence that you attempt to give them. But do, by all means, if you can do it without losing your own mind, Andre, do continue to persuade those observers, do continue to challenge that world that the Russians have constructed with, for themselves 
by sharing sharing the good material and sharing the facts as you can. Thank you. Uh, you're basically describing the mechanisms of like a, a really big, powerful cult. It's it's like cults function. You give people the mental tools to sort of reject the reality shared by other people. But this is like on a really, really big scale. And as with people who have joined a cult, I sort of that framework helps me better understand what I'm battling with here, I suppose. Um, you can yeah. try to, to, to give, give them your version of reality, but, but you, you can't be too optimistic in terms of, you know, reaching them because they have the tools. They have the tools to say, okay, so this person is challenging my worldview. Uh, uh, my cult leader just told me that that is because he's doing Satan's work or whatever. So, so, so it's... Yeah, it's it's uh, scary stuff, and and thank you for the answer. It is, and I and I think that it understanding it as a cult like mentality is so important. But it is, mm. it leaves us all in a very sort of pessimistic position, where it's very hard to see a way to reorient the, those people away from these beliefs. Although I know a lot of people are trying very hard. Mm. Yeah, thanks very much for the question, Andre, and, and for the answer, Ian. That was a great answer. And I think um, I think you really hit the nail on the head with your um, kind of analysis of, of what Lavrov said. And, and I was, and I think I think some media and, and me to some degree kind of interpreted it as, well, this is an admission, but maybe an admission. But I think you're saying it's it's more of a bragging, and that's what. You know, trolling, bragging, and that's what, um, and that does seem to be part of this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's diplomacy by trolling, almost. And that's something, obviously, that Russia's been doing more and more of. You know, not just since the since the February twenty fourth invasion, but over the past over the past few years. Um, but I'll, I would just. Also, answer to Andre. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, you know, I, I I would say yes. But it's if you can sway anyone, you know, anyone who's reading your posts um, to to understand, you know, where the truth is and where it's not, you know, then I think I think it's worth I think it's worth. It. So, um, to see if uh, does anyone else, uh, anyone have any more questions? I would be happy to take one or two more. Again, you can request to speak several ways, including hitting the button to request speaker privilege. Uh, I see one from Martin. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, thank you. Um, very important conversation. And um, uh, thank you, Steve. And um, uh, thank you, Dr. Garner, as well. Um, I'd like to uh, ask, uh, would you 
I mean, I would say it, um, but Dr. Garner, you're, you're the specialist. Basically, the regime in uh, Russia is a, is a gangster regime. Um, I've heard people say, and I agree with that, um, look at the Godfather and you'll get an idea of the type of um, governance that you see in, uh, in, uh, in Putin's Russia right now. And um, so it seems to me that most of the people, and I have to say it, um, are, are zombied. They, they've just, you know, swallowed the Kool-Aid, like, like the previous speaker said. Um, it's a cult, but a very, very dangerous um, cult led by um, kleptocrats, by, by mobsters. W would you say, sir, that that would be um, a, uh, an accurate characterization? That's my first question. And my second question is, there was an article in The Guardian yesterday by um, the journalist, uh, what's his name? Last name is Tisdale. And um, he's, he basically uh, concluded by saying that there has to be uh, targeted strikes by NATO to end this war and end it quickly. Because the longer it goes on, of course, uh, it's obvious, the worse it becomes in, in so many ways. So I'd like to get your comments on that. And I'll drop down to listener. And thank you very much. So on the question of NATO strikes in Ukraine or elsewhere, I don't know. I'm not a military expert. Um, but you can... Certainly, there is a, a couple of military experts that I would look to. Um, I, I would look at Michael Kaufman. Michael Kaufman is usually a very reliable analyst on Twitter and elsewhere for what the implications of some of these claims might be. So if you go check out his work, then you might find something interesting. Um, on the question of the gangster comparison, and I've, I've seen this before, and I understand the appeal of it. But the question that I want to pose in return, not to you specifically, Martin, but to the to the audience more broadly, and this is a this is a point that I'm wrestling with right now, is well, the problem with the gangster comparison, as I see it, is that gangsters don't really believe in anything except wealth and power, and it's easy to see that the Russian regime believes in nothing but wealth and power. But what if parts of it actually do believe in this apocalyptic, messianic worldview? And I think there is some evidence, at least, to suggest that people around Putin are beginning, perhaps, to believe parts of it. This sort of mix of orthodox Christian tradition, the cult of war, the religious stuff around World War II all mixed up with the sense of Russia's historical destiny to somehow save the world. And it's, it's bizarre stuff. It doesn't, doesn't really have any sort of, uh, you know, theological or ideological consistency. But then look to any authoritarian fascist regime, and none of it really has any theological, ideological consistency. And the difference, of course, between a cult or a gangster 
mob. And a regime like the one that I'm potentially thinking of is that frequently in cults and gangster mobs, the leaders don't believe it. What if we're in a position where parts of the regime really do believe the stuff that they're selling and they're not ashamed to use that Nam Nuspeedner again because there's nothing to be ashamed of in their eyes. Because this is just the way the world is. They're on a religious mission. There is a kind of historical religious destiny to follow. And I, I don't know to what extent that's true, but I think it's something that we ought to be thinking about and ought to be exploring more seriously rather than just writing the whole thing off as this is a kleptocratic regime that is just after money and power and territorial gain. Uh, thanks for that great, great answer, Ian. Uh, I, I have, I probably, I have very little to to add. Um, um, but I, I would say I, I'm not going to comment, of course, uh, on 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 this, the whether there should be NATO strikes. Uh, but I'll just say I think calls for that, you know, are linked to you know what I've seen. Uh, more and more of lately, which is kind of concerns among some in the West that a stalemate, uh, this is something that uh, Navalny's, um, the Delina Volkov was, was writing about recently and others, you know, that a stalemate, um, you know, leaves Russia with control of parts of Ukraine and, and presumably ambitions to gain more of Ukraine or to, you know, do what, uh, what was what uh, Putin wanted to do in the beginning, which is essentially um, overthrow the government and take control of Ukraine. So, you know, there's the idea that um, uh, I think, you know, people who, who are concerned and don't want that to happen, I think some of them are looking for ways to, to you know, to, what could be done uh, to make it so so that it, it doesn't happen. Uh, and, and just on, on the, the kind of messianic thing and then the, the idea of, something more, I mean, maybe say less or more crazy than, you know, than, than simple or than straightforward kind of kleptocracy. Um, you know, Putin's and people were, were missing these warnings or not really registering them enough, you know, for years, ever since Putin told, told, uh, us president George W. Bush that Ukraine wasn't really a country, you know, people have been, have been missing that. And I think, you know, I think there's sort of more to to that to Putin's, you know, what people have called uh, obsession with Ukraine than, you know, than than straightforward kind of kleptocracy. Um, so, uh, again, it's it's a strange. Maybe sounds strange to say more to it because it's in a way it's less or more uh, unjustifiable, perhaps. But um, but I think that is kind of a factor, and I think there are, there may be as as Ian says. Uh, as Dr. Garner says, uh, you know, people around Putin who who are also uh, be believing that. So um, I will uh, wrap it up here. And thanks very much uh, for everyone's uh, time. Thanks for listening. And um, uh, Ian, thanks very much for joining me. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounded like from what you were saying about about the book you're working on now, um, you know, it sounds like you're really digging deep into into what into the perceptions there and what people are thinking. So, 
that will be interesting to see. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Ian Garner, an expert on Russian war propaganda, whose forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the battle that has captured Soviet and Russian minds for 80 years. And he's now working, um, as we just mentioned, on his second book about fascism and the future of Russia. Uh, my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe um, to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, or other uh, places you listen to podcasts. I'll be back again uh, next Monday, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. Thanks for listening.